Welcome to the next in a series of Ask a Chair podcasts brought to you by SAEM Rams. Hi, everyone. Thanks again for listening. We are here with Dr. Robert Newmar. He is the chair at the University of Michigan, and he is really a leader in research and emergency medicine. Thank you so much for coming to speak with us, Dr. Newmar. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. Let's jump into some of the questions that we have for you. Speaking of research, your particular research interest is cardiac arrest resuscitation. I'm really interested to know, how did you find that you were interested in this particular field? Um, And what advice do you have for residents and medical students who are really starting out learning what they're interested in in research and working to develop a research career? When I went to medical school, I really wasn't planning to do research. I was going into family medicine and I was going to go home after medical school and have a practice and spend a lot of time fishing and playing golf. But when I went to medical school, the thing that struck me most was I expected to learn everything we needed to know about caring for patients. And what struck me most was how much we didn't know or we didn't understand. And that's really where I developed my passion for research. I wanted to be able to address questions that we needed the answer to but not wait for someone else to do it, to gain the skills and the ability to answer those questions. So I started developing uh, an interest in cardiology. I had a strong interest in in physiology, and then decided to do a one-year Sarnoff Research Fellowship, so take a year out of medical school to do research. And that's where I found a mentor, Chuck Brown at Ohio State, who was doing CPR physiology. And I found that very fascinating, that we knew a lot about the physiology of the cardiovascular system but knew much less about the physiology when the heart stops and then you have to do chest compressions and artificial ventilation and understanding that. So that was very interesting to me. So I took a year out and did research doing uh, CPR physiology and pharmacology. Then as we sort of did that work and learned how to restart the heart and resuscitate, this was animal work, the next most important question was, well, does the brain recover? And the ultimate goal was for the patient to wake up go home, go back to work, or go back to their normal life. And when I went back to the University of Pittsburgh to finish med school, I started working with Peter Saffer, who was one of the leading researchers in cardiopulmonary resuscitation there, focusing on brain resuscitation. So I switched gears and became more focused on neurologic injury caused by cardiac arrest and how to preserve the brain. Even back at that time in the 90s, looking at therapeutic hypothermia and eCPR strategies. So then the next twist was that He had been doing work in large animal models and translational research, but was having trouble getting NIH funding, even though he was an internationally recognized investigator, because the NIH was moving towards more molecular biology. Most of the research they were funding was molecular biology research. So I decided at the end of my residency that I really needed to go back and get more training to be able to do that. So after my residency, I did a research fellowship at Wayne State in Detroit working with Blaine White, who was one of the few people in the country at that time that had NIH funding to do basic science research. And that's where I did my PhD after medical school as part of a research fellowship. And then at that time, while I was at Wayne State, I was able to get my first NIHK award and continued to focus on both cardiopulmonary resuscitation and brain injury research since then. So advice for anyone interested in research or not even sure whether they have an interest in research, really, there's really four main things that I think are key. One, you have to have a passion for creating new knowledge. You need to be able to get the right training to be successful. You have to have the right mentors because they really guide you and make you uh, successful. 
and then you really need to be able to find a focus or an area where you really are driven to become the expert in that field to be successful. So one of the things that's important at this stage in medical school and residency is you know, trying to identify whether you have a research passion or not, you have to do it. You can't just sort of look at other people and say, oh, I want to do that or be like that. You have to sort of get involved. And I suggest that people get involved very broadly early on. So be involved in laboratory research projects, get involved in clinical research projects or health services research, find out where that passion is, or even more informative, if you do it and you find out you don't like it, then you know, mm -hmm. and you don't have to worry about that decision later in your career. But then once you identify that, then to be successful in the current age, you really do need additional training. So we don't learn in medical school, we don't learn in residency how to be successful as an independent investigator. Mm -hmm. And doing a research fellowship, getting an additional degree, you know, for basic science, it's probably the best advice is to, you know, to have a PhD or get a PhD even after residency. But for clinical science or health services research, there's really good master's degrees in mm -hmm. clinical research design and epidemiology that can really help people be successful. So that could be a research fellowship, that could be institutional training grants that institutions have, and then we currently have a K-12 program, which is another NIH-funded program for career development to allow people mm -hmm. to get that additional research training as a research fellow or early faculty member where you do get an advanced degree as part of that. And then obviously the mentorship and finding mentors that have a track record of being successful in terms of mentoring other people or have a track record of getting the research funded because if your mentor doesn't have research funding, there's no research to do. And then also a track record of good scholarly output. So those are the kind of mentors that really have demonstrated their ability to be successful and are likely to help anyone you know, coming in as a mentee to be successful as well. I noticed as you were telling that story that you had a network of mentors, not necessarily all from your own institution. Can you speak to that and how those relationships came to be? Yeah, so mentorship is just so critical in your success in guiding your career and being willing to move from one institution mm -hmm. to another if the mentorship you need is not available locally was sort of was my model, but I think in the current age, there's great opportunities to have distant mentorship where you can have people that you work with and help develop your career don't necessarily have to be at your own institution. It's mm -hmm. harder because you don't have that you know, casual right. interaction. And it's harder to keep that engagement because either for the mentor or the mentee, other things become more pressing locally that challenge that uh, relationship at a distance. But Certainly, if you have a mentor at one institution at your, where you're in medical school and residency and you move on to another institution, mm -hmm. I strongly encourage people to try to maintain that mentorship relationship that's already been established. Mm -hmm. It's much easier to maintain that at a distance than to create a new mentorship relationship that hasn't existed. So those are some thoughts about that. Thank you. Speaking of your research interests, you're the co-chair of the International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation. How did you get involved with this organization, and what advice do you have for young academicians that are interested in promoting our specialty on the international stage? So getting involved in broader than your home institution and in a forum that puts you with multiple people from other specialties, kind of bringing different specialties together. Yeah, I think it's really important for people in the specialty of emergency medicine 
to be engaged in our own national organizations. I think that's critical for our national organizations and our specialty to be successful. But just like in our clinical practice where we're at the interface between inpatient and outpatient care and interact with all specialties, we have a great opportunity to be involved and engaged in other national organizations outside the specialty of emergency medicine, and we have a lot to bring value to that and internationally. My pathway was I got involved in the American Heart Association, which generates the guidelines for emergency cardiovascular care, basic life support, advanced life support. So I mm -hmm. joined the um, advanced life support committee or subcommittee, became the subcommittee chair, then became the chair of the entire emergency cardiovascular care committee. And then sort of a next step was to get involved in ILCOR, which is the consortium of organizations like American Heart Association across the world that develops the consensus on science and treatment recommendations for emergency cardiovascular care. So moving up through a national organization to get a role in, in the international organization was, was that strategy. In terms of advice, again, I think one way is to get engaged and move through the committees and then leadership roles in national organizations that have some affiliation internationally. Mm -hmm. If you are going to be involved in international organizations, you really want to make sure that they have a clear mission and a clear objective because all your time is valuable. And I think there's tremendous things we can learn from the way emergency medicine is practiced across the world. It's mm -hmm. incredibly diverse if you go to Asia, Europe, South America. Every place I go to visit and walk into their emergency department and talk to them about how they practice, I learn something new that mm -hmm. I try to bring back to our institution. So I think globalization of healthcare and particularly globalization of emergency care, there's much that we can learn from the way other people practice emergency medicine as well as what much we can bring to other organizations and other We've talked a little bit about your research and the different activities that that's led you, the different leadership roles that it's led you to take. And you do both clinical and bench research. And so I know that our residents are very interested to know, how do you juggle your research, your role as the chair, your clinical role, and your time outside of work? Yeah, when I look back on some of those things, I wonder how I do that myself. <laughs> uh, one of my answers when people ask me how things are going, I say, I'm just trying to keep all the balls in the air. I think... One important message I would say is that I look at academic medicine, and especially in emergency medicine, as a team sport. Mm -hmm. So the way that we will be most successful is building highly functional teams, and then within those teams, developing people that can become leaders and succeed in those teams. And the more we approach it as a team sport, the, mm -hmm. the more we can take on mm -hmm. and be successful at. So. And one example for my research projects is when I put in a new grant, I try to have a co-PI. Mm -hmm. So bring someone in, especially someone maybe junior in our department, that we could work on the project together. I can bring some of my experience to it, but that brings an opportunity for another investigator to sort of have a key role in the project. Multidisciplinary science, we are very much intentional about when we develop research programs in our institution that we want to bring people in from other, not only other specialties, but other domains of science, so people in, in basic science and engineering, mm -hmm. in public health. And once you have those, again, those teams, then the work becomes much more feasible in terms mm -hmm. of taking on large projects and spreading your time. So sharing the load. Yeah, sharing the load. But again, I think, you know, in my experience that it's actually better science because, mm -hmm. you know, the era where you have sort of the lead investigator 
you know, running a lab and mm -hmm. everything that comes out of that lab is their ideas. You can't compete with these teams mm -hmm. that are bringing diverse expertise into a project. And so I think the science is just better when you do it that way. Now looking at the field of emergency medicine a little more broadly, what are some of the biggest changes that you've seen over the course of your career? And what future changes do you anticipate? Where do you see our field going in the next five years or so? So that's a great question. I think there's a lot of significant changes that have happened. I would like to comment on research as mm -hmm. one of the biggest changes that I've seen in the course of my career. So when I graduated from residency in 1993, so that was about 25 years ago, mm -hmm. there was only less than a handful of investigators in the country that were emergency medicine physicians mm -hmm. that had NIH funding. Mm -hmm. So 25 years later, this past year, and fiscal year of 2018, in terms of the NIH, we've set a record for NIH funding in emergency medicine at $62 million mm. of NIH funding. That's 122 active NIH grants among 97 different PIs and 36 different departments of emergency medicine. So going from mm -hmm. a handful, two or three people, mm -hmm. less than a million dollars to $62 million and 122 active grants in, in mm -hmm. 25 years is a tremendous change. And that only includes NIH. So we had tremendous opportunities, had tremendous amount of funding in Department of Defense, AHRQ, CDC, foundational funding, both the SIM Foundation and the Emergency Medicine mm -hmm. Foundation have great work in putting seed money into developing investigators to go on to get these larger grants. And even we're making progress in getting philanthropic funding uh, for mm -hmm. emergency care research. So we've come a long way in the past 25 years, but on the flip side, I think our potential is even greater moving forward. So one of the advantages we have in emergency medicine, unlike other specialties, is we can pretty much do research on almost any medical condition. Mm -hmm. There's a, the acute phase of that that presents to the emergency department. So in some ways, we're at a huge advantage when you talk about organizations like the NIH and all their different institutes where, you know, maybe a cardiologist can only go to National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute or a neurologist can only go to National Institute of Neurologic Disorders and Stroke. We are able to actually go to almost every institute mm -hmm. and apply for funding. So that diverse pool of resources that we have access to is somewhat unique to emergency mm -hmm. medicine. So our potential moving forward is really tremendous. And the challenge will be, though, with all the changes in the way we, and the focus on the way we deliver healthcare mm -hmm. and optimization of our clinical healthcare delivery is important, and we need to focus on that, but we have to remember that that's one of our missions in mm -hmm. academic emergency medicine. We need to focus on excellent clinical delivery and optimize that, but we can't let that uh, take all of our attention. We need to have excellent education, and we really owe it to our patients to have excellent science to improve the way we care for people and improve their outcomes. And if we get too distracted with all the challenges that we have in our clinical care delivery, especially at academic medical centers, mm -hmm. we're not going to fulfill that mission. So we need to invest in a pipeline of young investigators to come through the system and fulfill all those things I talked about, and, you know, develop a passion for research, find an area of focus, expertise, have the right mentorship and the right training, and we really need to invest in that. And if we do, we will double or triple the amount of research that we can do within the specialty. 
Excellent. That's some exciting stuff that you're talking about. I look forward to being a part of that, and I know that our medical students and residents do as well. As we close things out, do you have any other advice for residents and medical students, specifically those that are aspiring for a career in academics or just in general? I think the most important thing is early in your career, gain a wide experience of the things that are involved in academic emergency medicine. So you're going to get excellent clinical training. You need to take the time to learn about what opportunities there are in research, what kind of by doing it rather than just by you know, talking to people about mm -hmm. it or looking at it. I get involved in the lab, get involved in a research project, learn what that's like. And that's the only way I think you can develop that true passion that's going to be sustainable in your career to do what it takes then in terms of the additional training and the additional time required to have a successful career. Thank you so much for stopping by to talk to us, Dr. Newmar. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, and I know that our resident medical student listeners have really enjoyed hearing what you've had to say. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity.